I love Kyler, one of my favorite players. He's very tiny. I love to watch <laughs> tiny quarterbacks. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 26th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining us from New York is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? Good. How's it going? Doing good. You know, uh, my my daily routine of uh, staying up until around midnight watching baseball and football at the same time has been interrupted last night. I only watched football. So I'm glad to get back. Mm, Maybe yeah. there won't be any, any football tonight, obviously, but it, back into that rhythm of watching baseball at least until midnight. And then, you know, we get to the weekend, everything's happening. Yeah. All the sports happening till midnight is really great. I know there's nothing more annoying than people on the East Coast complaining about late start times, <laughs> but, but also, those I'm are really only tired. annoying to people <laughs> who are not on the East Coast, but to people on the East well, Coast. Well, let's find out get from. It. They get us. Yeah, let's let's find out from our West Coast uh, presence from Los Angeles, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Uh, Jeff, are you annoyed at the East Coasters talking about how late sports are? No, no, it doesn't annoy me, but I, I feel like I want to complain about how early sports are. Yeah, how early <laughs> have these games started for you? They just, it's just like 10 o'clock and the sports are over and you got to like, You got to like know. sleep at that Talk point. Talk to your family. Yeah. Go, to <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> I hate that. It's so annoying. Yeah. You know, watch Succession. I don't know. It's like nothing to do. It's coming 10 o'clock. And by the way, the London Oh my God, game, that, yeah. I had to get up at like That's 5 in the morning. But did you get up though? For like a Jaguars? I got up, I got up for the Jet one. Obviously. <laughs> obviously. Yeah, because there's nothing more worthwhile I, I than watching the Jets. Uh, on, the, yeah. on the other side of the planet. Right. Play terribly. <laughs> Hey, but now that Joe Flacco is a Jet, are all yeah, of we're back. is everything we're better? Back. It did improve their <laughs> yep. rating we're back. for what it's worth in our model. Uh, Zach Wilson is rated so low that f- adding Flacco improved uh, their their current rating. I was so confused during that game on Sunday to find out that the Jets didn't have a real backup for Zach Wilson. Not that their like guy out of wherever he was from isn't isn't a real quarterback. He's yeah, doing Mike fine. White is a perfectly cromulent quarterback. <laughs> but like they don't have some like grizzled veteran. Where is Chase Daniel when you need him? He's too good, I guess, to be no. on the Jets. Sorry. Well they're not a serious football team. You have to remember oh, that. Right. Yeah. On today's show, we'll discuss the World Series, which starts tonight with game one between the Atlanta Braves and Houston Astros. Then we'll talk about this past week in football and what's happened to some of our Super Bowl contenders. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Tonight, we kick off the 2021 World Series between the Atlanta Braves and Houston Astros. This is the first time the Braves have been to the World Series since 1999, and they haven't won it since 1995. Houston, of course, has been to the World Series much more recently, albeit with something of an asterisk. On ESPN's Around the Horn, though, Woody Page was convinced that the Braves would not be ending their 26-year title drought this year, and he even marshaled some stats to do it. I tried all day to figure out a way for the Braves to win this series, but I couldn't. Trying help. They're right in Vegas. You can go through it. I mean, they're even in the infield. Uh, Astros have the advantage in the outfield to catcher, in relief pitching, and I like their starting pitching better. 
They are accustomed to playing with a DH. Atlanta's not. And the, the most important thing, I think, overall, is they, they're hitting in the postseason 360 with runners in scoring position and striking out only 21% of the time and averaging 6.7 runs per game. So, Neil, can you figure out a way for the Braves to win this series? What does our model think about their chances? Our model is much higher on the Braves than it sounds like Woody Page uh, is because it thinks that this series is basically a coin flip. In fact, if you go uh, to our predictions, we have it at exactly 50-50 between the Astros and the Braves. The Astros have the better rating, uh, and I think that's borne out by the overall sort of, you know, long-term, season-long stats. But the Braves, I think that they pick up some ELO just by being so much better recently than they were uh, for much of the season. And in fact, uh, I wrote about this in our in our story that the Braves uh, spent the second most games under 500 of any World Series team uh, ever. The, the only team that was under 500 for more of the season were the 1973 Mets who were somehow under 500 as recently as the 153rd game of that season, uh, but then won the NLC, made the playoffs, uh, won a division, because you had to do that back then, uh, won the NLCS, and then took the Oakland A's, who are a dynasty team, to seven games in that World Series. So again, it can be done, and I think in some ways maybe we're overlooking the Braves, at least uh, if you kind of take that that Woody Page mentality and approach to it because this team, yeah, I don't think that uh, that Rosario is going to continue to have a 1300 OPS. I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are the, Freddie Freeman has been hitting well. I think Ozzy Albies is due to hit better uh, than he has in the postseason so far. Same with Adam Duvall. And uh, the pitching has been great for them. Uh, if, if you look, really, aside from Luke Jackson, who seemed almost determined to try to blow every game that he appeared in against the Dodgers, they've been really solid. It is, a, it is an odd strategy, but it's a strategy. Yeah, they, they've been really solid pitching-wise, uh, both in the starting rotation, but especially the bullpen. We saw Tyler Matzik come in and really deliver some clutch innings for them in that clincher. Um, but they've gotten great pitching, and that's really been sort of the, the core of this team um, down the stretch also, like we, a lot was uh, of attention was paid to the rebuilt outfield, which was a great job by Alex Anthopoulos to, to really cobble that together. But the pitching has also been a lot sharper for them. And we said going into the playoffs that they looked like they were in much better shape pitching wise this year than they were last year. So I think that matchup of the Braves pitching against the Astros hitting, which has been historic, and they are averaging the second most runs per game uh, going into the World Series of any team in the post wildcard era. The only team that scored more runs per game before the World Series were the 2007 Red Sox. That team obviously went on to sweep the World Series. So I think. That matchup between the red-hot offense uh, of the Astros and then the uh, the Braves pitching is going to be what determines it. But it's it's close. I think it's closer than a lot of people are giving credit for. Yeah, I, I think um, predicting baseball is kind of a kind of a foolish endeavor in general. Well, Jeff, it is kind of also a uh, a thing we do often. I know, I know, but I mean, I, at least um, compared to, I, 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 to me, it is the most. It's the hardest sport to predict because you just don't know. 
um, you know, when guys will suddenly stop hitting, when guys will suddenly start hitting and become impossible to get out. Um, and even amongst the pitchers, I mean, the, the performance the Braves are getting out of the bullpen is, is, you know, far exceeding what it was in the regular season. I mean, you mentioned Matzik. The guy's, has he pitched in every game? Um, the guy's just been a machine. And, and, you know, Will Smith and A.J. Minter and all these guys are, like, uh, you know, really performing at a high level. And it does seem like the World Series, you know, or all postseason baseball will come down to the bullpens anyway. So, yeah, the only thing that worries me about the Brave is, Braves is their, the bottom of their lineup is kind of in a black hole. Um, with uh, Travis Darno and, and, and Dansby Swanson really like not producing much of anything. Um, so I, I do think like top to bottom, Houston definitely has the more formidable lineup. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's room for improvement. Um, at, you mentioned Albies. I think he's someone they'll need to step up. Uh, I think Duvall could obviously do the same. And if Freeman, I mean, you're right also to say that Rosario keeping up at this pace does not seem like something you could bank on, but who knows? But then, yeah, Jordan Alvarez has been as good and as hot in the postseason as uh, Eddie Rosario has been. And I, he does have a little bit more of a track record of being an elite hitter. So maybe we can kind of count on a little bit less regression from him. But, you know, he's not going to keep up the, the performance he's had either. And the other thing for Houston is this is another stat that I sort of dug into that really was mind-boggling is the Astros have scored more runs in the postseason with two outs than the Braves have scored, like, period, full stop. 45 runs for the Astros in the playoffs so far uh, with two outs, which I think is the record, all-time record going into the World Series as well. So they, they're hitting, like, something like 180 points higher than normal with runners in scoring position in two outs. I don't think that is going to maintain that, going forward either. Yeah, that doesn't feel sustainable. And that was how they yeah, that, yeah that they, seems they like, buried no. the Red Sox with with some of these timely um, two out uh, RBIs late in that series. Of course, it also helped that they weren't giving up like ten runs per game anymore. And that's an area of concern for Houston is the is the pitching. You know, the the especially the starting rotation because. They were really good late in that series against the Red Sox, but they were also really bad early in that series. And Lance McCullers is going to be out again. And so it's really just going to come down to, like, you know, Framber Valdez and Luis Garcia uh, and guys that have had really good and really bad starts. And I don't know if anyone knows. How, even Dusty Baker doesn't know what he's going to get out of these guys on a regular basis. And that's why he's gone to the bullpen so often also. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I mean, the, the, the bullpen has been... The Astros made really specific moves to to bolster their bullpen for specifically this reason, you know, and then it's been a it's been good for them how much they have to go to it. Then again, how much the bullpen can sustain it, um, given <laughs> given the the way that the rotation has the starters have pitched um, will be a huge storyline in this. I don't know. I, I do think this is what's fun about baseball, because. We don't know. And it will come down to random stuff. And it's really hard to take two teams and compare them over a seven game series because like anything can happen, as we saw with the Dodgers losing. The Dodgers still have a higher rating in our 
in our model than either of these two, these two teams, which you know makes sense. They were really good. Hey, Sarah, that means they'll be uh, they'll be one of our um, paper. Didn't we do like paper champions, paper, paper tigers. tigers? Yeah, of yeah. teams that finished the season with the highest ELO rating but did not win the championship. Which I feel like the Dodgers have yeah. done before also. So this is sort of like maybe last year was yeah. the exception to the general rule. Yeah. What the Dodgers normally do is win on paper. <laughs> and not in reality. <laughs> not in real life, which is is sad. And I'm, I'm sorry, Dodgers fans. That what a, it, it was a bummer. I'm sorry. All right. Well, if Houston wins, there will be all kinds of takes about how this championship either redeems the cheating scandal or doesn't make up for the trash cans and and I don't I don't want to litigate that. But what lessons Jeff I should think you do want to litigate that. <laughs> I mean, I've oh, already litigated, litigated it in my mind years ago. Yeah, I know what I think. I want to talk about though what lessons teams should take away from the Astros success besides that like <laughs> cheating works Cheaters. and has yeah. no meaningful consequences. Everything I'm about to say, you can obviously counter argument with the cheating argument. So let's just couch that. Uh, let, let's just uh, let's just park that argument for now. But it is impressive, you know, what they're doing because they, they they really don't have the players they had in, in 2017 or 2019. I mean, obviously Altuve and a couple of these key pieces are there. But they are really a testament to team building. Um, you know, in many ways. Team building is kind of half it, half the formula. The other half is like getting the most out of your talent that you do have. Um, that's the side of the equation where like a team like the Mets fails, where they sort of like draft a fantasy team and throw them out on the field and, and they all look incompetent and they all play worse than their uh, their career numbers or how they're sort of expected to perform. Whereas you get guys go to Houston and here comes the, the cheating innuendo um, and, and guys like really excel and they do better. You know, you look at some of these relievers, you know, of Ryan Presley, you know, on your, your former win, you know, performing at a high level when it comes to Houston. And and then the other thing that's really, I think, remarkable at Houston, which doesn't get talked about enough, is what they do, what they have done in term. And maybe this is the, the answer to your question in terms of what other teams should do is how they've taken advantage of the international signings is, is remarkable. I mean, you look at Luis Garcia, Framber Valdez, Jose Arquita, Christian Javier, all those guys were signed from um, on the international. They were international free agent signs for less than twenty thousand um, dollars. Not that's not even counting Jose Altuve, who they signed for fifteen thousand dollars from Venezuela. So they're finding these players and they're finding an inefficiency, I think, in the market and, and, and finding it really is a remarkable testament to their their talent evaluation and the way they're cultivating some of these players that are, are, are not, they're not spending a lot on. And, and they're, they, I mean, I just named two, th- you know, two members of their starting rotation and Christian Javier is basically a member of their starting rotation. Once Granky gets pulled, um, obviously like that's not the only way they team build. I think they made some smart moves like getting Brantley, um, you know, obviously trading for Jordan Alvarez was a great trade. They got him from the Dodgers. So, you know, it, they, they have put together a pretty remarkable team and done it without necessarily like spending a ton and are succeeding, you know, without having Verlander, without having much from Granke, you know, without having Lance McCullers in the postseason. So 
And then the other part is, you know, getting the most out of the players. You know, you mentioned the sort of up and down uh, performance by their starting rotation, but I sort of see that as a strength. The fact that Garcia and Valdez went out there and got bombed, they both got bombed in their, their first outing against the Red Sox. I mean, I think this was the last time we did the pod. I was talking about how bad their starting pitching is. Well, those p- pitchers came out, made the adjustments, you know, and we know this is a team that studies analytics and, you know, is looking at a, a lot of more sophisticated things than most teams and made the right adjustments and, like, you know, change their approach to guys like J.D. Martinez. And all of a sudden they get these great starts out of them, which saves their bullpen and and, and really sends them to the World Series. So it, it kind of does work on all levels, whether it's the front office, whether it's the the analytics, whether it's the the actual sort of, uh, you know, management. Not not I don't actually give that much credit to Dusty Baker, but, you know, Sometimes the baseball manager doesn't need to do that much if you have a really, really good system in place. Yeah, just don't screw it up. All right. Well, the World Series kicks off tonight. I'm sure we'll have more to say next week. But for now, let's take a break and we'll be back to talk about football. What a weird week it was in the NFL. We had blowouts, collapses, the Lions using all the trickeration that they could come up with in in a losing effort, of course. But one of the biggest talking points to come out of this week have been the struggles of the Kansas City Chiefs, who lost 27-3 to the Titans and now have a stunning 3-4 record. On ESPN's first take, Michael Irving was ready to pronounce the Chiefs' dynasty over in light of this loss. What they're going through right now is the reality that nobody's scared anymore. Sure. And you walk in a game, you think you're still that old team, and you think you're just going to shake it off and and, and go back to killing people and dictating from an offensive standpoint, because that's what they've been doing for years. They've dictated to off to defenses, this is what we're going to do. We'll make you do this and then tear you up. And they no longer can do that. And I'm going to tell you something. Every game you go in, I don't care that you are no longer the same team. Every game you go in, they're still going to say, well, these are the Super Bowl. They went back-to-back Super Bowls. That's what we're playing. So now you got to match that intensity when you have all the doubt that you have. I remember Dion coming in that room one day when we were talking. We had just lost another game. And he's like, Mike, we got to do something about it. I looked at him. I said, Ty, it's over. The dynasty is over. That dynasty right now as we know it, the Kansas City Chiefs, it's over over they will not get to the playoffs this year right now the chiefs have a 44 percent chance to make the playoffs in our nfl model jeff do you see any reason for hope that they'll be able to come together for a playoff run i mean uh, i think mahomes alone and mahomes when i say mahomes i mean mahomes and hill and kelsey uh means they are very much in the playoff picture, uh, you know, in terms of a wild card. Um, but in terms of the Chiefs, you know, just in general, this this does not look like a good team at all. I mean, this, it, this looks like a very beatable team. And I think it's like taken the public a, a, a while to realize that, um, you know, counting the Super Bowl, they've lost five of their last eight games and they're very beatable. And, and we went so long where they were so hard to beat um, and looked almost impossible, um, especially to stop on uh, with their offense. But now it's just not the case. And, and, and it really comes down to they have the worst defense in the NFL. And when you have the worst defense in the NFL or the second worst, depending on what stat you're looking at, that's not good. 
And Mahomes can only do so much. And I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the Buccaneers a little bit uh, unveiled a blueprint of a of, of way to beat them, you know, kind of taking away all the deep stuff, making them sort of look down underneath and, and, and applying pressure. And he, he's clearly out there trying to do too much. I mean, at least he was Sunday. He was, he was almost, you know, desperately trying to do too much. And that's turning to turnovers, which means – um, I think they have the worst turnover rate in the league or one of the worst turnover rates in the league. And those kind of the, the bad defense and the turnovers are kind of compound, compounding on themselves. And, and they're just becoming a team that's been a little bit exposed. I mean, granted, I think they some of these losses have been to quite good competition, you know, losing to the Bills. And I actually, you know, I was a little bit wrong about this Titans team. I think they're right there at the top of the AFC, you know, in that first tier of the AFC. So some of these losses are against quality opponents. Uh, they they're not playing quality opponents every week. There are a lot more winnable games on their schedule, but it's not an easy schedule. Uh, that being said, 17 games. I think that you know I wouldn't rule them out for the playoffs. I'm not giving up hope on them. Reed though is really you know an offensive minded coach, so the defense does need to get repaired um, or at least you know some sort of band aid uh, to put them in a position where they can play their offense and they're not you know in a 14 nothing hole and forcing Mahomes to sort of do everything um, and which leads to mistakes. So yeah, it's not looking good. It's, it's the Super Bowl losers jinx once again, yeah, which, you know, I wrote about how that wasn't necessarily a thing. I still think that that is more regression to the mean than, than anything else. I don't think it's I a think curse. You're right too. I, I don't think it's that too, but I do think sometimes these playoff games you do, especially with the two weeks to prepare um, which is obviously, you know, more than you'll get barring a bye week. Um, teams can figure out ways to slow, you know, especially a really good offense. You know, we certainly saw that, you know, with the the Broncos and the and the Seahawks, where the Broncos in the, in the game in MetLife, where the Broncos offense looked unstoppable. They gave them two weeks to kind of figure out how to do it. Um, granted, the Broncos would go on to win the Super Bowl after that, not but not with really the offense, because of the yeah. offense. Yeah, and I think if if they could wave a magic wand and fix an area of the team it's got to be pass defense that's the one area if you look at the differences in expected points from last year you know they were uh, only third in passing offense last year they're fifth this year if you adjust for strength of schedule uh and and their rushing offense and their rushing defense uh, are the same as last year and the rushing defense was terrible last year terrible this year 30th of both years the big difference though is they dropped from 10th in terms of expected points added above average per game uh, against the pass to 27th this year and they've played a tough schedule I don't want to downplay that you know they've they've uh, played the seventh hardest schedule if you look at the average elo rating of the teams that they've played so far that's going to get a little easier over the rest of the season but they have huge, huge issues uh, on pass defense that they didn't have last year. And I think that that's a problem that Mahomes, you know, as great as he is, he he will have to win shootouts, I think, the rest of the way to, to kind of cover over for that. And that, there, there's just an inherent limitation to having to win games that way. And we've seen teams that are like all offense and no defense. Uh, and they don't tend to 
go to the Super Bowl. They don't tend to win the Super Bowl because it is just such a high wire act each week. And and if you can slow down the offense a little bit, and I think, you know, rumors of Mahomes' demise are greatly exaggerated. Like he had one bad game, one of the worst games of his career, if not the worst of his career. But up to that, that point, he had still been having a really good season. I think he was leading the NFL mm-hmm. in QBR before last week. I seriously doubt he's doing that now after that game. But like this was really like the one week where he just had like an outright stinker, and that's pretty rare for him over the course of his career. He famously almost never has bad games. But like I don't I don't think that the the sky is completely falling. Like he'll probably be better back to his normal self, you know, over the rest of the season. But the question is like given how bad their defense is, is it going to be enough? And I don't think even Mahomes playing at like his peak could necessarily fully offset how bad their defense has been. It's been real bad. It does feel like the problems on offense have been more about like Mahomes doing too much or dealing with the way teams are scheming against the offense now. Those seem fixed like fixable problems. The defense, I don't know how you fix that. I mean, you can't just like change out all your players. <laughs> That's funny. like they're, they're, it's not a good defense. It won't be like, right? Like, there's no way to just fix that right now, right? Play better? I, I mean, what could you do when your yeah, defense Steve is Spagnolo playing badly? Come, uh, you know, going <laughs> on his meeting, he's yeah. like, guys, I, I know you didn't know this, but we're going to have to play better. They're like, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Now I get it. Now I see. <laughs> now I don't know yeah. what you do. I mean, the maybe the saving grace that we often talk about with defense in football is that it's a lot less consistent than offense. So in some ways, it's like, I mean, it sounds really bizarre to say this, but I think in some ways, like if your defense is playing really badly and wasn't expected to play this badly and, you know, injuries, of course, are a factor that that you can't get around and there's various other things. But like just all things considered, you would expect your defense to maybe regress a little bit more toward like being respectable than a, a bad offense where it's like, there's there's less hope of just getting better by regression. And I don't want to put too much on that. I mean, that's like usually the stat head's like crutch is to say, oh, it'll just regress to the mean. Don't worry about it. It's like, yeah, you kind of <laughs> have to do some things to maybe make that happen. But I do think that we said it time and again that defense is a lot more volatile in the NFL uh, than offense. And so you would expect this defense to maybe play a little bit better. Like, you know, they're, they're in like Jacksonville territory. You know, they're, they're, um, we talked about their turnover differential. The only team worse than them is Jacksonville. They have a worse turnover margin than the jets. You never want to be in that conversation. So like those things you think might improve. How's that possible? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's, I think also, yeah, it comes to, Mahomes pressing. I mean, he's had some fluky picks. Also, he's had some deflections and some weird things happen or whatever. Um, and then the defense not forcing turnovers, you know, is, is a part of it, too. So you would expect defense to maybe regress a little bit more, though, than um, uh, than than a similarly horrible offense. I say that, yeah. but like, you know, ask me in, in uh, <laughs> eight weeks or however what I guess now it's like... Uh, Nine more weeks? Ten more weeks? Yeah. Yeah. Forever. No, no, just looking at it, the Jets, the Jets turnovers are 11 interceptions. Nice. Um, one fumble loss. The Jets are holding on to the ball. Hey. They're better than the Chiefs. The Chiefs have lost eight fumbles. Now, fumble recoveries 
is something very fluky. We've seen the way those those scrums go, the way, you know, a lot of times that is just pure luck, whether you're falling on the fumble um, versus losing the fumble. And so I do think there is some reason to think that won't last. And, and that's significant. 17 turnovers. I mean, it's hard to win. It doesn't matter who you are if you're turning the ball over that much. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is on Mahomes. I mean, those interceptions, some of those interceptions were like, oh, yeah, no, no, buddy, too. no, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, I think that's that's a that's maybe a more fixable problem. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, so the Chiefs lost, the Ravens lost this week. The Bills are coming off a loss last week to the Titans. The Chargers also had a bye this week are coming off a loss to the Ravens. So but the Bucks. Packers and Rams are are six and one, and from out of nowhere, the Arizona Cardinals are seven and zero. Oh. Jeff, are all four of those teams for real? It, it depends how you define for real. I mean, like, are they good teams that will make the playoffs? Yes, certainly. And I certainly think the Cardinals have taken it to another level this year, especially in that division, which is is very, very tough division. I still think the Rams, you know, adding. Matt Stafford into Sean McVay's system with all that talent around and in what Cooper Cup's doing this year and, and, and having all those other pieces in place on the defense. I still think they, even though they struggled against the Lions, who, let's face it, are, are better than most um, 0-7 teams, I think. Uh, I think they're better than most of the 1-5, 1-6 teams out there right now. Um, that being said, I, I think the Rams are still, you know, an elite level uh, team in the NFC. The Packers, I, I, I'm a little less sure of. Talk about a team that that's kind of benefited from an easy schedule. If you just look at what they've done, you know, they got killed by the Saints in that first game. Then they beat the Lions, the Niners, who are not good, the Steelers, who are not good. That weird game against the Bengals, which looks better now that the Bengals, you know, just beat the Ravens. But remember that weird game where every uh, the kickers forgot how to uh, kick field goals um, and then the Bears and Washington. So they really haven't been tested so much. We'll obviously see that when they play um, the Cardinals this Thursday um, and they might be without Devontae Adams, which is a little that talk about a, a bad loss. If he, I don't know his status right now, but their offense is a little one dimensional. It's basically throw the ball to Devontae Adams every play and, and hope that works. And it often does work. And it certainly works against bad. I mean, and that caused the listen. line on that game to move by two and a half points, which was shocking for a receiver absence. They have Alan Lazard. What else do they need? They're fine. <laughs> I feel like your Iowa State like allegiances might work a little bit better in basketball than in football in terms of Hey, Lazard had a great game this last week. He's 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 going to help them. He's fine. No, I I yeah, the Devontae Adams thing is it, that is funny that a receiver losing a receiver would cause a line to to move. We never see that. That or only happens with like quarterbacks. A half a point or something yeah. a point. Not yeah. two and a half, but I think that speaks to how much they believe that Rodgers and Adams are sort of tied, uh, you know, joined at the hip in terms of their production. I think that's right based on like, I, don't, I, I haven't looked at the stat in the past couple weeks, but um, Adams was had the highest share of a team's receiving yards of any 
receiver in football, and that was true last year as well. I mean, really, if you look at his entire career, Devontae Adams might be the all-time leader in that stat. I don't know who, um, I haven't looked it up myself, but yeah, the the total share of, or individual share of a team's total receiving yards while a player was on that team, he's got to be up there if he's not number <laughs> yeah. one all-time. Yeah. Yeah, I this Thursday night game. I'm really excited. I mean, I I hope I hope Adams can play. I'm really excited to see these two teams go up against each other. I think we all want to see if the Cardinals can keep this going, right? Like we, it it's getting harder and harder to like write them off. Like they're 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 pretty good. I think it's I, I don't know if it's because we see Kyler Murray as sort of gimmicky, but he really is. We have a story on the website today about how he has learned how to combine the kind of circus plays with like straight up like normal Tom Brady quarterbacking, you know, and and having both of those is really dangerous and and interesting. And I think he's making better decisions this this season so far um, and figuring out how to do both. I'm really interested in this team. I think they're I think they could really. Um, they could go far and, you know, they might really fall to earth on Thursday night. And then I rescind my prediction. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we talked about uh, the Chiefs and their defense getting horrible uh, and, and going backwards. And maybe that'll regress. That's really really the opposite of that is the red flag for me with uh, the Cardinals is their defense went from 20th in EPA last year to second this year the only better defense is in buffalo uh and so to me that's kind of the question is like how you know can they keep that quantum leap that they made on defense going forward because that was really the undoing of that team last year and you know kyler was banged up down the stretch and they they lost some winnable games uh and all of that but really mainly like they had a bad defense and they've gotten a lot better but i love kyler one of my favorite players he's very tiny I love to watch <laughs> tiny quarterbacks, and uh, yeah, we don't. I don't know why we don't give him the same benefit of the doubt that we've given other tiny quarterbacks like Drew Brees and Russell Wilson and some of these guys. Like, is it just we need to see them do it over a certain sample of games? I think he's getting. He's getting that. it I mean, now, I'm, you know, I, more so I, than in the past. But I still feel like maybe it's just. He, 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 even by the standards of small quarterbacks, he looks especially tiny running around out there. I don't know. You can't really quantify that either. But yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a tiny man who can throw the ball very far and run very fast. All right. Well, we can't end our NFL conversation without talking about our survivor pool. We all benefited this week. The Bucks routed the Bears, the Cardinals beat the Texans, and the Rams beat the Lions. <laughs> Although it was not without some. Um, excitement. Uh, all right. So the order this week is Neil, Sarah, Jeff. Neil, who are you taking? I'm going to keep this simple. I'm going to take the Bills at home against the struggling and I don't know what's going on with them, Miami Dolphins. Yeah. Unless they trade for Deshaun Watson in the next like few days and somehow he's cleared to play and somehow uh, rekindles his old uh, skills, I don't think Ugh. the Bills are going to lose this. No, I think that is a that is a good pick, and that's the pick that I wanted to make, which is very annoying. Um, oh, there's oh. another good one. You got another good one. Uh, I'm actually going to take the Chiefs over the Giants. We've just Ooh. talked about oh, the Chiefs. Wow. I, I think they're going to come back, and I also don't believe in the Giants, despite their dismantling of Sam Darnold and the 
uh, Carolina Panthers, who just turned back into a pumpkin after their uh, couple weeks of success. I, uh, I'm i going to take the Chiefs. I think they're going to come back strong. They have a good line. They, I believe in them. I believe in you, Chiefs. So don't let me down. <laughs> All right, Jeff, who you got? Well, I'm going to take the Bengals uh, against the Jets. The Jets without Zach Wilson. Uh, mainly because there's not a lot. This is a kind of a tough week. But, I mean, it does feel like this could be like a Bengals letdown spot. Anytime you play the Jets, you're in an inherent letdown spot, especially coming off a big win. But I, I don't know. The Jets are a mess. <laughs> so they should be fine, <laughs> so, even on the road. So true. I, don't, I just, uh, you know, now that they have Joe Flacco, everything's going to be okay for the Jets, guys. It's going to be okay. All right. Well, we will see what fresh chaos next week brings. But for now, we'll take a quick break and be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, what do you have for us? So I want to talk about the list that the NBA released in honor of its 75th anniversary season, the top 75 players of all time. Uh, This is an update, really, of they did uh, for the 50th anniversary in 1997, they did the top 50 players of all time. So there are now 25 more players recognized. And as you might expect, all of the top 50 also made their way into the top 75. That's not necessarily a a surprise. I think there were a few additions that maybe they either reassessed or, uh, you know, didn't quite have enough room for the first time around. And they added Uh, Bob McAdoo, for instance, was added and he did not play like his career had already been over for 11 years when they came out with the top 50 list. Uh, So I think that was a clear case of reassessment. Uh, Dominique Wilkins's career was almost over by that point. He retired in 1999. Uh, so they could have put him on the list in the top 50 originally. Um, Dennis Rodman is another one that I don't think we knew it at the time, but his career was practically almost over by, by 1997. Um, so those three guys were kind of addendums to the list. You also had a few guys that uh, their careers, they were like in the middle of their careers in 1997. Uh, Probably you could have put them in at that point, but also, you know, it wasn't surprising to see them off. It would have been a surprise to see them not be in the 75. That's Reggie Miller, Gary Payton. uh, Those two guys, they had already established themselves, but they still had more years left to go in their career. So this was sort of an addition for them. And that really leaves us with, If you're talking about players who started their careers from like the mid 90s onward, so probably wouldn't have had a chance to make the original list uh, by that point, by 1997, based on their performance, uh, you have a list of uh, 21 players in that in that group that, that that are sort of the the additions that have happened since the original list. Uh, And I thought it would be fun to talk about those players and look at how the NBA's list differed from what the list that we would have put together, the the 21 addendums that we would have put on there uh, as the best players since 1995, uh, according to our Raptor metric, which uh, I think we're releasing the new numbers on, what, like today, tomorrow, tomorrow something yeah, like that, Sarah? Yeah. So encourage everybody to go out there once those drop and, and find the top players of 2022. But this, uh, these numbers are really just through 2021. I was looking at from 95 through 2021. 
So if you do Raptor and uh, look for the top 21 players who weren't already on the the um, previous list, you get a, some crossover. So there were 15 players who would be on both the NBA official addendum list and also in the Raptor list. And that's Jason Kidd, Kevin Garnett, Steve Nash, Ray Allen, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Paul Pierce, Dirk Nowitzki, Dwayne Wade, LeBron James, Chris Paul, Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, Steph Curry, and James Harden. Okay, so those are the guys that that we agree on. There are some guys that we disagree on, guys that were on the the NBA official list that Raptor would not have put in. And I kind of put them in two different categories because I think they both are interesting. So two guys that are veterans or retired right now, so uh, had plenty of opportunity, you know, to be to form enough Raptor to be in the top um, 21 since 95. Uh, but we're not in that group are Allen Iverson and Carmelo Anthony. And I think that they both tell a story about players that were still a lot more valued, I think, by things like the eye test or by basic stats than by some of the advanced stats. Famously, we talked about Carmelo last week, uh, still not being loved by by our Raptor metric. But that was kind of true throughout his career. He was never quite regarded by the numbers as uh, as highly as maybe you know people's opinions from watching him or if you just looked at scoring stats and that's a little bit true of Iverson also Iverson was one of the first sort of battlegrounds like assessing him and figuring out how good he really was was I remember one of the first battlegrounds for uh, basketball saber metrics and and trying to kind of sort out uh, the biggest differences between conventional wisdom and, and what the stats say. And I think we came around a little bit more on AI as the years went on, but both those guys uh, would be replaced by somebody like Sean Marion, uh, uh, who played for a long time for the Suns and, and various other uh, teams. Eddie Jones, guys that you wouldn't think would be on the NBA 75 list. I, I admit that fully, but the stats really loved those guys and what they brought at both ends of the court and sort of their efficiency, their defense, things like that. Uh, and of course, Iverson and Carmelo, known for maybe scoring a lot, but not necessarily efficient, not necessarily playing the best of defense. So those, I think, go in their ca- in, in their own category. And then there's also the, the list of guys that I think they they will be on uh, or should be on the list of Raptors top players if you give it like a few more years. But I think the NBA list, despite saying that it's not a projection, sort of included these guys. Maybe, though, their their wins above replacement or their, you know, stats that they've piled up haven't quite been uh, as high as some other ones that they might have picked. And those four are Giannis Antetokounmpo, Anthony Davis, Damian Lillard and Kawhi Leonard. Again, I don't take issue with any of those guys being on the list, though, but all of them started their careers at or after the 2012 season. Giannis started in 2014. Uh, And if you look at the list of Raptor leaders among players that started their careers in those seasons, they are all the leaders. Actually, with the exception of Dame and Anthony Davis because Draymond Green has more Raptor wins above replacement and he started his career in 2013. But aside from that, all of the other guys are the leaders for, you know, almost their generation of players, their draft class, whatever you want to call it, players that started their careers when they did. But there were some other players that maybe just had more longevity, veteran type players that put up numbers 
that made them more valuable in the Raptor list since 1995. Specifically, I'm thinking of Manu Ginobili, not on the list of the NBA 75, um, but was one of the most valuable players if you add up his Raptor wins above replacement. He actually had, for the time being, in fact, this may not be true anymore after a few games, um, but he had, uh, through 2021, 0.6 more Raptor war in his career, and this includes the playoffs, than Kevin Durant. Uh, And and Manny Ginobili, not a guy that really gets as much credit as he deserves, but a great um, efficient offensive player, great defensive player, especially during his prime. Maybe didn't play as many minutes. They kind of kept his minutes under control uh, out of injury concerns, I think, as much as anything. But a guy that Really is a beloved stat head um, player, you know, in in terms of the numbers. Uh, Vince Carter is another guy that I think you could have made a strong case for him to be on the NBA 75 list, arguably over somebody like Carmelo Anthony, you know, if we're looking at total value over the course of his career or Allen Iverson. Um, But he was not on that list either. And two other guys in in the mix that Raptor would have put in uh, at the expense of some of the other guys that I mentioned are... Andre Iguodala and Kyle Lowry. Those are interesting names. I'm not sure a lot of people would put either of those on a list of the 75 best NBA players of all time, but they are uh, also players that brought a lot of value, I think, at both ends of the court, efficient players. And that's a theme, I think, in terms of the disagreement between the Raptor list and the official NBA list is if you're a guy that scored a lot but maybe didn't play a lot of defense, you'll be more likely to be on the NBA list. If you're a guy that didn't score that much but were very versatile and played really good defense, you're much more likely to be on the Raptor list. So a little bit of a case of your mileage may vary. I think also a little bit of sort of putting in guys that uh, their their careers are still, you know, they're fairly recent into their careers, but they have shown so much uh, promise that maybe you could make a peak value versus total career argument uh, for somebody like Kawhi, I think, especially, or Anthony Davis or, or Giannis. So uh, that, those are the differences between Raptor. I was sort of, I, I don't think I was that surprised that there were differences between the two lists or that, you know, there would be mostly overlap, but a few differences. And I'm not surprised about the nature of the differences. The only thing that really threw me was, yeah, the, the younger guys being included, but that they hadn't put up maybe as much, um, wins above replacement as you would expect. But that's something that I think would change if we included this year or next year, you know, when that happens, I think that, uh, all of those guys would, would leapfrog the Kyle Lowry's and the Andre Iguodala's of the world, things like that. That's so interesting. I really, I feel the same way about this list as I did about the WNBA list where like the recent guys are great. And should be, will make the, you know, will probably make the NBA 100 list. But like, I don't know. I feel like a lot of these kinds of lists would do themselves a favor by like putting a capping (laughs) how recent guys can be. Like there couldn't be anyone drafted before or after, you know, 2010 or something. Because like, it's just very hard to compare. If God forbid Giannis got hurt. I shouldn't even say this because I don't want it to happen and I, I don't want to put it out yeah. there. But like there, if some un- guy who is not on this list got hurt, <laughs> um, you know, he wouldn't he wouldn't necessarily make the list going forward. So like it is a you don't want it to be a projection. You don't want to assume that someone will continue to produce at the levels that they had produced. So it, it, it seems like the wrong. I, I don't like it. I don't like having 
I don't like trying to compare that because it's just it's too it, you can't really do it yet you know and and for Giannis I mean I think they're putting a lot of premium and perhaps rightly so on MVPs and championships and finals MVPs and things like that uh, and so that's where I think someone like well maybe Iguodala is a bad example because he famously did win the finals <laughs> MVP uh, over Steph Curry in that first championship but you know somebody like Kyle Lowry for instance is there how much value is there to being consistently a like really 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 good player but not necessarily you know, the best of the best, like being in that conversation, that I think is something that's also a tension with these lists of sort of taking for granted guys that put up really, really valuable numbers over a very consistently over a long period of time. Sean Marion, I think, was also kind of in that category, but never once being considered like the very best player, whereas like you've made you could make the case at different times in their careers that each of Giannis, AD, Dame, and Kawhi were, if not the best player in the league, sort of like in that conversation yeah. at least, you know, playing at their best. I don't think you ever made that uh, case for Kyle Lowry or Eddie Jones or Andre Iguodala or any of those yeah, guys. Although I, I do wonder if Kyle Lowry is kind of hurt by where he played, that his best seasons were played in, in Toronto, which you know, flew under the radar always. Even when they won it all, they, it flew. The Raptors flew under the radar. So that, I wonder if that hurts him too, just as... And Kawhi got all the yeah. credit. Kawhi really got all the credit for that championship. Yeah. I, I did a quick survey of the the most common sort of names being thrown out as snubs. Um, the, the most common is actually Dwight Howard, which is interesting because I, I don't know if he would have been my first thought, but I, I think we've sounded... I've tend to con- kind of conflated recent get four fouls in, in six minutes, <laughs> Dwight Howard, with like what and Dwight Howard did Anthony for a long Davis time on the prior to that. that Dwight Howard. <laughs> yeah, but it, there is definitely a trend of players, uh, and and amongst the sort of list of snubs of these guys who are second or third chair on on really good teams, because you have you know you have Manu and Parker were thrown out there, Clay Thompson and Draymond. Um, on those warrior teams, Paul Gasol. Paul Gasol, on, on, yeah, I was those, gonna say uh, him. Paul Gasol yeah. on all those Lakers teams. Chris Bosh uh, on the Heat teams didn't make it. Um, so it, it does seem like it, those were the kind of the ones that were often overlooked. Otherwise, you know, I think it was most of the ones you mentioned. Uh, Vince Carter, also Derek Rose came up. Tracy McGrady. I don't know if I necessarily agree with those. I mean, I think it's overall like. If these are the ones we have issue with, I think <laughs> pretty it's a good list. pretty good yeah. list. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I, I, I feel like the snubs on this list were not like start a fight about unless you're Dwight Howard, I guess. I demand Vince Carter right, on this yeah. list. <laughs> these are these are some pretty like these are on the edges. All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. And that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>